Hey, Cornerstone. Okay. I'm glad to see you, too. That's good. Hey, uh, just want to do a real quick shout-out to Santan, to our Scottsdale campuses. Man, just so glad that you're part of us and part of the conversation that we're having right now about Dangerous Church. If, if you've been here uh, for the last few weeks, we're actually wrapping it up today. Today's the day in which we're just going to ask you to say, hey, will you become a dangerous church? And where this discussion has, has been about is this idea of what if there were a group of believers who would say, look, I'm in. I'm going to be the follower of Jesus that Jesus always hoped that I would be. I'm going to serve the way he hoped I would serve. I'm going to live the way that he hoped I would live. I'm going to give the way that he hoped that I would give. And in doing that collectively, as we do that as the church, that we would be an absolutely unstoppable, undeniable force for God in this world. We would be a dangerous church. Our community could not ignore Jesus Christ if you and I were the church that Jesus dreamed the church of being. And so we just say, what would that look like for you and I to take a stab at being a dangerous church? If you've been here, you know that a part of this moment, and one of the reasons maybe this conversation's landing right now is that we're in the process of celebrating our 20th anniversary. And my guess is you've kind of heard that seminal story of the beginning of Cornerstone that there was 26 people who gathered together in the living room of a house and with big eyes and dry throats we looked at each other and we said hey is there any chance is there any chance that we would put our hands together make a commitment with each other today uh, to take this Bible study and turn it into a church and lo and behold out of that that locking arms that putting hands in moment 26 became the 7,000 that we're experiencing today. And we just said, wow, uh, what would it look like if 7,000 renewed that commitment? What if 7,000 put their hands in and locked arms and said, we're in. Uh, we'll do what it takes to be that type. Of, what would God do in the next 20 years with us and with our community and with our world? But here's the thing you just need to hear out loud. Putting your hand in is not something to be done frivolously. It's not, it's not something you just casually do. When those first 26 put their hands in and said, count us in, we're going to do this, you realize the vast majority of those 26 didn't even attend the church they helped start for the first six months. Uh, they were all off in children's rooms and in nurseries and taking care of people so that they could attend the church they started and they didn't even get to go to services for a while. Uh, there was a financial commitment. All three pastoral families that came to start the church, we were living on support like missionaries. There was no way we were going to make it if those 26 didn't pony up and say, look, we're going to give sacrificially. We're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to help you guys eat while we uh, start this church. So it was no small deal. But the question still remains. If God could take 26 and make us the 7,000, what would God do with 7,000? had the same level of faith, the same determination, the same level of commitment, the same willingness to see what God would do with sold-out Christians. What would God do over the next 20 years with a church like that? And we, so we've been asking. And today we're actually going to ask you to make a commitment. We've, we've talked about uh, coming to this moment. We've got cards. You, you got a card in your uh, weekly. There's cards in the seat back. And here's what we've asked you to be in prayer about uh, as we come to this day. We've said, what if we made a commitment in this year as a church, collectively, to grow better than we grew last year? 
And we said, we, look, we don't know what that means. It's going to be different for every individual. There may be someone in here who's never done daily devotions. And you go, hey, this year for the first time, I'm just going to spend two minutes reading my Bible every day and praying a little bit. And that would be a commitment forward in growth. If you've been doing devotions, maybe it's going from two minutes to five minutes, or maybe it's joining a small group, or maybe it's getting into an elective or coming to the mind. I don't know what it is for you. That's why we asked you to pray. But we just said, what if everybody in the church collectively said, I'm going to take one step forward in maturity and in spiritual growth this year, whatever that is, and whatever that would be for you, but that church would be moving toward being a really, really dangerous church if we all did it. And then we talked about this idea of giving and this idea of being willing to take earthly treasures, earthly material things, and leverage them into eternal things. And so we said, look, what would happen if we all simply gave better this year than we did last year? And we said, again, we're not even telling you what that is. There's some people in this room you've never given. So giving one time, dropping a dollar in the offering plate would be better than last year. Uh, There are some in here that you give occasionally. You drop a kind of a tip in on Sundays and just deciding to say, hey, I'm going to give consistently. I'm going to give every week something would be a move. And again, guys, it doesn't matter. We're just simply saying, do you realize the resources and the capacities that would come to the church, the ability to change lives and change our community if we all just moved one step forward in what we do in giving? So we asked you to pray about what that looked like for you. Today, the conversation, we're going to land this, and this is going to be part of what we do in this moment together, is a simple conversation that says, what would happen if every single one of us in the room committed ourselves to moving someone we know, a friend, a co-worker, a relative, maybe somebody else that's already in the church. But what would happen if we all committed to moving at least one person this year a little closer to the cross? That, that my life, the fact that I was here on earth, the fact that I breathed air for 365 days this year, somebody, somebody is going to end up at least one notch closer to experiencing Jesus because of this year in my life. And we said, man, if a whole church went out on that mission, uh, wow, that would be a life-changing thing. That would be a dangerously powerful church if we all did that together. So we're going to have that conversation, and today I want us to look at the lives of four guys who saw a moment when their friend desperately needed an encounter with Jesus Christ. And in that moment, they resolved in their hearts, we're going to do whatever it takes, whatever we have to do to get our friend to Jesus. We'll do that. Even if people don't understand, even if we get, I don't care. We're going to get our friend to Jesus. So here's their story. Grab your Bibles. It's Mark uh, chapter 2. If you're not real familiar with your Bibles, if you go to the back of your Bible, work to the left, you're going to get to this book of Mark. If you get to the book of Matthew, you've gone too far, come back to the right. Mark is one of the Gospels. It chronicles the life and the teachings of Jesus. Mark chapter 2, here's the story of these four guys. Here we go. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and here's what it says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Uh, They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. So again, he's come, he's speaking in someone's living room because there aren't churches like there are today. And people have gathered around, they've filled up the inside, they're sitting shoulder to shoulder, 
uh, side to side. Now they've spilled outside of the house. They're leaning in the windows. Now the crowd has even enveloped that. And people are standing on the edges hoping to hear just a fraction of a word that Jesus would say. Uh, He preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. So you, you get the moment. So word is spread in this little town that, that Jesus is coming back. These four guys that, dude, this is, this is so cool. I mean, last time he was here was amazing. I mean, he taught us stuff that we had never heard before. So they're going, sign us up. Sign us up for the Bible study. And they're planning on attending. And then, you know, when we don't get the details filled in, but apparently one of them thought and said, no, wait, 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 wait. Last time Jesus was here, he was healing some people. What about our friend? I mean, the reality is, I mean, Tim, Tim's been paralyzed his entire life. What if we could get him to Jesus? Because here's the deal. He's not getting to Jesus without us. He's paralyzed. There's no way he's making it to the Bible study. But what if we got Tim to Jesus? And so now he solicits the others and he says, look, I I know, I know, I know we're going to be late. I know it's going to be hard carrying them all the way over to the the house. But but what if, what if we got Tim to Jesus? Look, I don't even know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he'll just hear some great teaching and maybe some of the bitterness and the anger that's in his heart about being paralyzed would be changed. You know, I I don't, but how cool would it be? What if he actually got healed? And, and all I know, guys, all I know is that getting him to Jesus is going to help. That's all I know. And so what if we get him to Jesus? So in that moment, four guys become stretcher bearers. Four guys realize that their assignment, that the most powerful thing they can do in this moment is get their friend to Jesus. I'm 12 years old, and many of you have heard my story. My dad had left our family uh, when I was nine. Uh, we were the poor family on the block. You know, we were the one that people went, wow, I, I, is that group going to make it? And my mom uh, ended up signing me up for a program at a little local church just down the street called Christian Service Brigade. Oh, I didn't bring the shirt. So you had these like little Cub Scout shirts because Christian Service Brigade was Cub Scouts for Christians. That's what it was. And so I had done that when I was younger. My mom thought, hey, uh, this is probably going to be positive for Lynn. He doesn't have a dad. He needs some sort of a role model. There'll be, you know, that going. And so she signs me up for Christian Cub Scouts, Christian Service Brigade. So I'm going to uh, this thing every Wednesday night and we stand and we salute and, you know, did little things and earn badges. There's a guy leading Christian Service Brigade. His name is Tom Lutz. Now, Tom Lutz is an eighth grade biology teacher. So think about this. He spends all day with junior hires. Now, if there's anything in this world that's going to like absolutely leave you brain dead by the end of the day, it would be spending... We even tell people when they volunteer around here, you're sure about junior high, right? I mean, because I'm just telling you, there's a challenge there. And, and so he spends all day with junior hires, and now, apparently, at some point, this church had been recruiting, said, hey, we need some help with this program, and Tom had signed up now to spend his Wednesday nights with a whole group of young 
teen, preteen boys in a Bible study slash Cub Scout thing. I can't imagine how many days he came home from work and went, the last thing I want to do is be around a bunch of brats again tonight. And yet there was Tom leading Christian Service Brigade. And guys, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. I'm just thankful. For some reason, Tom took probably the most ragamuffin kid in the whole program under his wing. And he just spent time with me. I can remember, because I can't even tell you how much that filled my tank and how much it filled my heart to have a man be kind of a father figure to me. I would would go to ride my bike to junior high, which was a good almost two miles away from my house. And when junior high got over, rather than riding my bike home, I would ride in the opposite direction of my home toward Tom Tom, Tom Lutz's apartment. I'd get there and I'd have to wait for him to get home from work. And then he'd get home from work and we would share macaroni and cheese and Coke. That was hanging out. And the cool part was, because he was a biology teacher, he had rattlesnakes and tarantulas and Gila monsters. And now he's just, it was cool for a kid. It was just cool. Now, here's what you got to get. I don't remember Tom doing a single Bible study with me. I, I, don't, I don't even necessarily remember any deep spiritual conversations. I don't even know that Tom could have done it. But here's what Tom had figured out. If I can just keep Lynn engaged in the church, if I can just keep Lynn as close to proximity as possible to Jesus, I'm thinking something good will happen. And guys, I, you think he had any idea that that little ragamuffin kid would one day turn out to be a pastor? And it was Tom. Here's what you know. Every one of you has a Tom. The reality is if you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, every one of you has a relative who prayed, You've got a friend who invited. You, you got a neighbor who had a bumper sticker on the... You, there's, some, there's some story. There's, ready for this? There's some stretcher bearer in your life that said, if I could simply get my coworker, if I could simply get my friend a little closer to Jesus, it would be good for my friend. And I promise you, every one of us in this room has a stretcher-bearer story. Someone that you really owe a thank you to for helping you get to Jesus. Which then brings us to a question. Who is it that's in your life that needs you to be their stretcher-bearer? Who is it in your life, that you're the best chance that they're ever going to figure out Jesus, that they're ever going to get to the cross and have this encounter with the Son of God. And if you don't take your corner, if you don't stop and say, look, this is probably going to be inconvenient and I may be showing up for Bible study late and this is going to cost me more than I... But if you don't get them there, they probably won't get there. See, the reality is there's a world that we live in that needs the followers of Jesus Christ to bear stretchers. Back to the passage. Verse 4. 
since uh, they could not get him, uh, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, guys, think about this. I can't get my friend to Jesus because there's too many Christians in the way. Uh, they're all crowded in for Bible study, and now my friend can't uh, get to Jesus. And think, guys, think about this. Think about how easy it would have been to give up in this moment for these four guys to go, well, you know, hey, guys, it was a good try. Right? I mean, it was a good thought. But apparently, you know, it took us a little longer than, than we thought, and it was harder to get him up the hill to the house, and now we're here. I mean, it's packed. It's packed. There's, a, there's no chance. I mean, what are we going to do? Lay him down 100 yards from the house and hope he hears a word or two? I mean, it's packed. How easy in that moment would it have been for them to say, hey, I, it was a good try. And yet, think about this. These guys will not be deterred. These guys are so committed to the idea that getting Tim, getting their friend to Jesus is going to be changing for him. It's going to help him that they're saying, look, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me what I have to do. Here's why that's so critical for you and me. Because I'm just going to tell you that often getting our friends to Jesus turns out to be harder than we imagined when we first started. You and I are living this moment right now as a church. You realize that when it's not uh, fall break, uh, like it's right now, the room's full. It's packed. And now we're sitting here in a moment saying, hey, help us buy some more purple chairs. And look, I, I, I get it. When you came, uh, when you first started attending, you, didn't, you had no idea that was going to be part of the conference. You never, you never dreamed that someone was going to ask you to buy a purple chair for someone else. And yet here we are in that moment. Because on a normal Sunday, there's too many Christians sitting in the chairs. And all our friends are sitting on the outside. And so we've said, I know. I know this is harder than you thought. I know this is greater than we expected. Help us buy a purple chair. You realize the fact that you're sitting in a purple chair is only possible because somebody before you bought that purple chair for you. And how cool is it that the ones who have been most inclined and most willing to buy the next set of purple chairs are the ones who've already bought one before? And so I'm just saying to you, don't be surprised that this conversation is normal. And, and, and if you and I are going to be stretcher bearers, if you and I are going to help our coworkers and our neighbors who are struggling in life have a seat in the room so that they can be in the presence of Jesus and figure this God thing out, then it's going to be a little harder than we thought. But we're going to do what you have to. If you have to dig a hole in the roof, you dig a hole in the roof. That's what you do. Now, guys, look, look, look. If you had been born back at this time, if you'd been hearing this story in the time of Jesus, you'd have realized how big a deal this hole in the roof conversation is. Because this is, you know, we're all thinking right now, you know, you know, and you open a hole and you lower him down and, you know, it's thatch roof, guys. Thatch roof. And here's what you need to know about a thatch roof. That thatch roof has probably been there for years, which means every storm that's come by, every time the wind's blown, it's deposited tons of sand and dirt in that roof. You're not going to remove that roof without just bucket loads of dirt falling on top of the people on the inside. 
Here's the other part about thatch roofs. Things like to live in thatch roofs. I, I can promise you right now, I, I was part of a missions project that took a thatch roof off of some huts in Belize. There were woolly thing ruins in there. I mean, it was just bad. I mean, we were all jumping off the roof like little girls. Ah! Did you see the size of that spider? I mean, there, there are things in thatch roofs. So as they go to do this, guys, I'm just telling you, nobody likes them very much. Nobody's excited about it. Nobody understands it. Nobody quite gets why they're doing what they're doing. But in their hearts, they just know, hey, if I can, if I can just get my friend to Jesus, I'm pretty sure something really cool is going to happen. Think about this. They run the risk that Jesus doesn't get it. I mean, what if Jesus is going, that was my best point, and then that spider fell on the lady's hair, and she was screaming, and you run the Bible study, guys. And yet they are absolutely determined to get their friend to the cross, to get him to Jesus. Guys, 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 think about this. You're part of a church that has committed ourselves that as we grow up and as we do all this discovery of Jesus, that we're not going to be content with that, that we want with all of our hearts to desperately move the people that we know and love closer to the cross and closer to this encounter with the Son of God. It's why we do snow at Christmas. We, we don't do snow at Christmas so our kids can write. We do snow at Christmas because it's the easiest way to invite our neighbor to bring their friends and they can come and hear about it. It's why we do Harvest Festival. And we go out and set up hundreds of booths and we work our heads off and hand out candy. We, we, we do that because it's a chance for people to come on this campus and go, wow, those Christians aren't that weird. Hey guys, why do we do Friend Day? You, you realize Friend Day costs, right? The, the Friend Day speakers don't come for free. We actually have to pay an honorarium for Friend Day speakers to come. And I get it. If you're a Christian already, you're going, I don't need to hear the story of Jesus. I get it. But why do we do that? We do that so you have an incredibly easy opportunity to invite somebody who likes football or somebody who they've seen on TV to come and hear the story of Jesus. How many churches do you know that buy billboards and send out mailers? Because you and I believe at our very, very core, if we can just get our friends to Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know it's going to be good. And we're committed to that. We're committed to being stretcher bears to this world that you and I live in. Even if it costs something to do it. Even if we have to dig a couple holes through a couple roofs to get it done. Back to the passage. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Best possible outcome. That this guy's eternity would be changed because he was encountering Jesus Christ. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, hey, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? Watch this. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man, which is a title for Jesus Christ, 
The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. Now, watch this, because it's kind of an interesting come. So Jesus says, hey, look, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees get all freaked out. They're going, wait, 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 wait. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is kind of saying, exactly. It's kind of the point. And then Jesus, in order to help them kind of process this, says, all right, all right, all right. Let's think about this from human terms. From human terms. Which would be easier for me to say? Would it be easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? Because here's the deal. Look, look, if I say his sins are forgiven, how would you know? How would you know if it really worked? How would you know if he was actually cleansed of his sins just because I said it? Or would it be harder to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk? And the obvious answer from a human tree, well, get up and walk, it'd be harder because you would know immediately whether or not it worked, right? You'd be able to go, oh, hey, see, you said you're the son of God. You told him to walk. He's still laying there. You'd know, right? So Jesus then says, okay, so just to humor you, hey, get up and walk, which is exactly what the guy does. There's nothing so powerful as seeing a life transformed to remind you that God really is God. And guys, here's the thing that's ironic about the conversation. You realize that forgiving that man's sins was actually the harder of the two things to do. Because forgiving that man's sins meant Jesus was going to go to a cross and get some nails and die. So actually, the first statement was the hardest to do. But Jesus, in order to help them understand who he was did the thing that from human perspective seemed the harder and raised a lame man to walk. How cool is it that you and I just sat in a room and watched people get baptized, telling their stories of life transformation? And didn't we just sit in a room and go, man, I think God's real. When I see a life get changed like that, I know that's not human capacity and ability. I mean, that's only God does that, right? And you and I are reassured in the moment. But guys, 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 think about this. I guarantee you every one of those baptism stories has a stretcher bearer story. Every one of those people, if you sat down and interviewed them right now and said, how did you get to Jesus? How did you get to a place of faith? How did you get to a moment of decision? And I guarantee you, every one of them is going to say, I have a grandma. And she just prayed for me. Every time I'd go to her house, she'd say, are you in church, Bobby? And I'd say, no, I'm not in church yet. I have this friend, and he's one of those kind of slightly irritating Christian friends, and he just kept inviting me. And I just thought, you know what? To shut him up. I'll go once. I had this neighbor, and they, they, kept, they kept working Jesus into the conversation awkwardly. You know, we'd be talking about football. We'd say, hey, how about ASU last night, you know? Berkovici was really accurate. And then he'd say, yeah, it just reminds me of Jesus. <laughs> how he accurately knows what we need. And we're like, huh? What? What are you doing? Every one of them, I guarantee you, has a stretcher-bearer story of somebody who said, I'm not going to go to Jesus by myself. I'm going to take my friend with me, my neighbor with me, my co-worker with me. 
And they did whatever they had to do to nudge him just one more step closer to the cross. And guys, here's, here's what you got to get. It's interesting to me that as the story is told, there actually isn't any account of anybody else being healed. I'm just wondering about those other hundreds of people who all came to the Bible study. Did they all forget their friends? Did they all think in that moment, this is only about me? And did they, did they all leave their neighbors at home? And guys, guys, you get, you get that the people you love and the people you live life in proximity to need to get to Jesus. Because getting to Jesus is going to change their lives. Because we live in a world, guys, get it, we live in a world of brokenness and woundedness and ugliness. And if for no other reason, even if eternity was not part of it, even if going to heaven wasn't part of the conversation, we would still need Jesus. And when you and I bring our friends and marriages are healed and relationships with kids are mended again, and when people figure out, hey, it's not about getting the biggest pile of stuff, it's about giving my pile of stuff, lives are changed. But guys, most importantly, until our friends have an encounter with Jesus Christ, they can't be changed. And you ready? More importantly, they have no hope of eternity. Jesus Christ is the eternal answer. And short of getting to him... They will never know God, and they will not spend eternity with God. I mean, this is just crystal clear in Scripture. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles so you, so you know that this isn't just me. Go to John chapter 3. It's going to be a little bit to the left. Keep your finger in Mark. We're not done there yet. I'm sorry, and John's going to be a little bit to the right. John chapter 3. This is Jesus talking. And it's interesting because there's a verse in here that probably all of us have heard at some point in our lives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't often, though, go ahead of that verse and after that verse because it gets very specific to say, and this Jesus we're talking about is the only answer for life. Here it is, John chapter 3. Starting in verse 15, that everyone who, next word, believes, puts their faith, has a legitimate life-altering encounter of faith with Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes this stuff may have eternal life in him, which simply means this, guys, you ready? Not in Joseph Smith, not in Muhammad, not in Buddha. In Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, ready, does not believe. I like Jesus. I pray to Jesus once in a while. 
Whoever does not believe in the name of God's only Son, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he did not put his faith, because he did not believe in the name of God's one and only Son. Which means simply this, guys. Everybody we know, everybody we know, who has not personally put their faith in Jesus yet, needs a stretcher bearer. Someone who loves them enough, cares enough to say, I don't care. I don't care what it takes. I don't care how hard I have to work. I don't care how much criticism I get along the way. I don't care how many awkward conversations it takes. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get them just even one step closer to my Jesus because that's their only hope. It also means this, guys. Every time you serve, you realize you're being a stretcher bearer. Every time you drive a tram or stand at a door and greet people or or go into a classroom and take care of little infants and change diapers, you realize you're being a stretcher bearer and you go, whoa, wait a minute, I don't know. I just thought you were doing that because you wanted to save money. No. We do that because you and I then make it more possible as we help people get off the parking lot, as you help people come into the church and feel warm. And what I wish I could tell you how many people say this. You ready? I knew in the first five minutes that this was going to be my church and that I was home, which is very humiliating for me because I haven't even preached yet. <laughs> but that was you. That was you bearing the stretcher and making it possible for them to come into this place and go, man, I am ready to hear whatever Lynn's going to say. My heart's gotten prepared because people have treated me so well. Do you realize if you're on the parking crew, you're stretcher bearing, you're helping people come to Jesus. When they get out there and they flip you off, you're helping people. As long as you don't flip them off back, you're helping people. You're stretcher bearing. Every time you teach... A group of sixth grade boys or some junior Every time you teach, lead a small group, you realize you're stretcher bearing. You're, you're nudging somebody that much closer to the cross. Hey, guys, guys, guys. Every time you give, every time you give, you're being a stretcher bearer. You realize that, right? Because the church in the turn takes the resource you give and we leverage it. To reach our community. Matter of fact, really, really, really cool things happened just recently. Our fifth and sixth grade program came up with an idea. Ready for this? They came up with an idea that said, hey, what if we went to the public schools and offered to do a free assembly for them? And then they found a group to come in who were Christians, but agreed to do assemblies that were secular. In other words, they were just very positive. Hey, if you think it, you can do it. You know, that kind of stuff. So, but they did the assemblies. The cool part about the assembly was this that they allowed us, because we came in to do the assembly, at the end of the assembly, to say to all of those 5th and 6th grade kids, oh, by the way, the same group that just did your assembly is doing a thing called Glow Mania at the church in about a week. So you want to come and be part of Glow Mania because the fun has only started. We ended up being able to go in and do assemblies in 15 public schools. We had literally thousands and thousands of 5th of grade, 5th and 6th grade kids that we got to go hold assemblies for. 
on Glow Mania Night, you ready for this? On Glow Mania Night, 1,200 fifth and sixth graders came in this auditorium in which then we uh, presented the gospel. And we've actually got a little bit of a, a kind of a video of what happened that night. So if we've got to play it real quick. Yeah. Okay, so, so I'm going to be the first guy in the room to go, I, you know, I don't even know if I get it all, astronauts and bubbles and dancing dolls, I don't, I don't know, I, you know, whatever that was, but you get, you get, who cares, who cares, because the heart of it was to say, hey, whatever it takes to get a fifth or sixth grade kid to come in the room, that you and I would be able to move them that much closer to the cross, that we could be stretcher bears. Hey guys, do you realize in that night, 500 fifth and sixth grade kids gave their lives to Jesus Christ? Which means, guys, guys, land this in your hearts. Every time you invite, you're a stretcher bearer. Every time you serve, you're a stretcher bearer. Every time you give, you're a stretcher bearer. Helping people get to the cross. Back to the passage. Verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. You think? You think? And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Because four guys carried a stretcher. What if there was a church full of stretcher bears? What would our community say about that? Here's what I want us to do. We're coming, we're coming to that moment. We're, we're wrapping up this conversation that we've had. What if the 26 became 7,000? What if the 7,000 put their hands in and said, God, do something with us? So in the weekly that you got, there's a card like this. If you don't have it, it's in the seat back in front of you. Here's what I'm going to say out loud. There's no place on here to put your name. Okay? So that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is you prayerfully before God saying, God, I'm putting my hand in. And you figure out what it is that God would want you to put on this card. And then when we do the offering in a little while, we're going to ask you to put it in so that we get a little bit of a sense of what God's doing in the heart of our church. But we'll never know it was you. You'll know it was you. God will know it was you. Okay? So here's, here's what we're going to do. Number one, what if we moved one in growth this year? 
So what are you going to do to say, hey, God, this year I'm going to grow better than I grew last year? Are you going to up your devotions? Are you going to join a small group? I, I don't know. You figure that out and put on there whatever you think God would challenge you to do this year. And do that. And guys, don't, don't wimp in this moment. Don't do low-hanging fruit and go, oh, you know, I'll go to church one more time next year. No, do, do what God would challenge you to do about growing better next year than you've grown this year. The second one, will you give better? I have no idea what you're giving now, but would you give better? And if you go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who's never given, well, then giving once next year would be better. If you're the person who says, hey, Lynn, I occasionally drop a tip in the offering plate, well, then just saying, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to drop a tip in every week. Well, that would be better, right? I don't know what better is for you. For some of us who've been giving pretty faithfully, it's time to move to the tithe. I don't know what's better for you. I'm just asking, what would God do with the church that decided to live a year more sacrificially than they lived the last year? And then the final one, and this one is really that one that says, how am I going to help get people closer to the cross? Am I going to invite someone, and you may just put their name on here? Am I going to serve in a ministry that helps to get people? I don't, I don't know. But what is it, what is it, what are you going to do? The last one just serve. What am I going to do to serve as a stretcher bearer and get people to the cross this year. What is that? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a moment right now. The worship team is going to come back out in, in just a few moments. And then uh, we're going to sing. And they're going to pass the offering plate. And part of what you're going to do is stick this in the offering plate as it gets passed. Okay? Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we come to a moment... We come to a moment realizing that you wanted the church to be really, really dangerous. That you wanted people in this world, when they encountered the followers of Jesus Christ, for it to be absolutely impossible for them to remain the same. So God, make us that church. Help us to grow better than we grew last year. Help us to give better than we gave last year and more sacrificially. Help us to bear a stretcher, to help somebody in our life get closer to the cross this year. God, make us a dangerous church. In Jesus' precious name, amen.